Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I'm Nate Silver. <laughs> and this is our live taping at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Give yourselves a round of applause. So we've got a sold out show here tonight and this is our first live show in New York City since the pandemic and it's our first ever live show in Brooklyn. So I just really want to thank all of you for being here tonight. We've got a big show for you tonight and I was a little busy this week and I was thinking, you know, if you've listened to the podcast recently, you heard that According to YouGov, 46% of Americans are either somewhat or very afraid that artificial intelligence will bring on the end of the human race. <laughs> and so I was curious, you know, like, before it straight up ends humanity, can it end my career? Um, <laughs> and so I asked ChatGPT, the artificial intelligence bot, to write a bit of an introduction tonight. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Nate has not seen it yet. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Let me know what you think. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast, the show that's statistically proven to be 95% accurate, 50% entertaining, and 100% dedicated to all things political. I'm your host, ChatGPT, the AI with more political know-how than a presidential candidate on the campaign trail. And today, we've got a special treat for you a live taping of the show, where you'll get to see us in all our unedited, unscripted, and unfiltered glory. So buckle up, grab a drink, and get ready to dive deep into the numbers, because this is the 538 Politics Podcast, and we're about to make statistics sexy. <laughs> I'm sorry, the fact that they're applauding Galen, I'm sorry, but it means that you're, you're fired. <laughs> So I'm, I'm surprised that ChatGPT knew we were sexy, um, but <laughs> I guess it knows all things. So um, all jokes aside, we do have a packed show for you tonight. We're going to kick things off with a good or bad use of polling. Apparently, 30% of New Yorkers say they want to leave the state. Then we're going to get a little bit more help from ChatGPT. So if you enjoyed that intro, just hang tight. We're also going to unveil our 2024 Republican primary averages and endorsement tracker. And we'll also welcome a special guest or two. Our first special guest will be a surprise even for Nate, and our second special guest will be a surprise even for me. So get ready. <laughs> and then lastly, of course, we'll take some questions from you in our audience. So. As ChatGPT mentioned, this is us, unedited, unfiltered. It's not entirely unscripted, but you know, I, I need my security blanket. So it's like any other podcast taping. You will probably hear some swearing or tangents. No way, right? Never. Um, no. That will not end up in the final cut. Only you here tonight will ever know exactly what happened in this room. So buckle up and let's begin with our good use or bad use of polling. So Siena College, one of the highest rated pollsters in the country, according to our pollster ratings, recently found the following. 
70% of New Yorkers say they are happy that they live in New York, while 30% say that they wish they lived somewhere else, according to a new survey of New York residents released from the Siena College Research Institute. Similarly, 71% plan to continue to live in New York five years from now, while 27% say they will leave the state. And in order to get a sense of how New Yorkers feel about the state in general, they asked 13 different questions on 13 different topics related to quality of life. And they found that the state gets high grades for our people, education, healthcare, leisure, and chance to be successful, low marks for affordability, retirement, politics, and feeling safe from crime. <laughs> this is kind of like a, you know, for those listening at home later this week, there's a slideshow behind us. You can see it's, you know, kind of happy. There's a Statue of Liberty, you know, they lead with the 70% are happy they live in New York. Here is what the New York Post did with the poll. Oh. <laughs> As you can see, the front page of the New York Post read, exit stage left, New Yorkers look to flee over crime, costs, progressive politics. And they went on to say, nearly a third of New Yorkers want to move out, fed up with crime, housing costs, poor schools, and more. Um, they went on to say in their lead, a stunning 30% of respondents who also cited inept political leadership and soaring taxes as reasons for wanting to flee said they already long to live somewhere else. Nate? Yeah. Is this a good or bad use of polling? <laughs> the polling is fine. I'm not sure if that is a great use of a New York Post cover, right? But like, <laughs> the polling is fine. You probably shouldn't ask about living in New York during tax week, by the way, right? That might bias <laughs> things a little bit. Yeah, but there's no basis for comparison here, right? I think in 2014, Gallup asked this poll of people in all states, and New York was like sixth or seventh out of 50 states in terms of people wanting to leave. So like, we are fairly high, and we saw in the pandemic, and since then, like people are relocating more to like, people like warm weather, <laughs> relocating to like red warm states, or, or blue warm states for that matter, right? Yeah, oh, here we go, okay. So yeah, as I mean, you can see behind us, the, the data to some extent, holds, at least during the pandemic? No, I mean, so there are a couple of theories, right? One is there is some red versus blue thing going on. One is about weather. And one, because it's 2020 to 2021, is about COVID precautions, maybe. People um, might not have liked the lockdowns. They may have felt their jobs were threatened by the lockdowns or their schools were closed. So like, you see movement into states that had more lax lockdown policies, but they're not all right. Like Georgia, Nevada, right? Arizona are now purple states. Um, Texas kind of almost purple, not quite. Florida, formerly purple, now beat red, right? But it seems like weather and, and climate and like taxes are the big drivers. Okay, well, I'll say for my part, I think the Siena College poll was a fantastic use of polling. Terrific. But I think that this is a bad use of polling for one reason in particular. If you look in the crosstab, so something Siena College does, which is really handy, is they categorize respondents by whether they live in New York City, the suburbs, or upstate New York. Now, of course, if you looked at these photographs, you would assume that everyone is leaving New York City in particular. But if you look at the crosstabs, happy to live in New York. New York City respondents, 77%. New York suburbs respondent, 70%. Upstate New York, 60%. <laughs> in fact, even on the questions of crime and affordability, people living in New York City feel safer and like apparently their dollar goes farther than people living yeah. 
in the suburbs and in upstate New York. Great bargains at Whole Foods, Galen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's going on here? Is this all politics? Is this basically like, or is it just some kind of devotion to New York City itself? Like, if you're going to put up with all the shit the city brings, you might as well tell a pollster you like it. No, there, no, there, there is, right? I mean, New York is a very self-selected city, right? We get a lot of migration from every country in the world, um, from every state in the country, right? And it's expensive as to live in New York City, right? So if you live here, you probably really like New York City amenities, you like culture, you like food, you like the subway and things like that, you like the Mets. Um, <laughs> whereas if you're like upstate, then you can kind of get like, I don't mean this in a bad way, but you can kind of get like stuck there a little bit, right? If you're in an era that formerly had more robust industry, maybe you had family ties there, right? It's a pain in the ass. I mean, moving's a big thing, right? Giving up your friends and family that are nearby, right? Switching jobs is a big thing. So you might feel like you're, you're stuck a little bit. Well, it's also political, right? I mean, upstate is redder and so is more inclined to say things in the state are going poorly. Democrats are in control and they've screwed the pooch. Yeah, one thing we, I think, have found is like, like red voters in blue states are like really resentful toward their states and maybe vice versa too, right? But like part of, I think, the good year the GOP had in New York State in 2022 was that like, they haven't had like a lot of exciting elections to vote on, right? And so turnout was very motivated for Republicans in New York State. Um, it's not as blue as like the West Coast necessarily, um, but there is a factor there for sure. What about stated preference versus revealed preference? So 30% of New Yorkers say they plan on leaving New York State in the next five years. I mean, how many of those people actually will? Like 9% of people move annually, but that's any move at all. It's moving within a neighborhood even, right? So cross-state moves are, I'm guessing, 2 or 3%, right? It's not common. Um, so we can kind of say for sure that it's unlikely that they're going to move. We have this chart, uh, although this data is like a little bit, New York had a very high 2020 census number. Yeah, so this data is based on net migration from 2010 to 2020. Over the past 10 years, you can see, you know, New York is in the middle of the pack, basically net zero migration. It's not growing, it's not shrinking. However, New York State probably overcounted its population by hundreds of thousands during the last census, so we can't necessarily say this is accurate. Look, we just want to count everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one thing that we've talked about actually on the podcast before is particularly when there is a Republican in office, Democrats will tell pollsters, I'm thinking about leaving the country straight up. Like, I'm thinking about moving to Canada, I'm thinking about moving to Europe. And one of our former fellows at 538 crunched the numbers and basically said it doesn't happen. You know, what is it? Something like, okay, 38% of American citizens say they've considered leaving the U.S. for good at least some point in their lives, according to a YouGov survey conducted last year. This share rises to 45% among Americans under 45 and 59% among self-identified liberals. But just think, like, you know, you, go to, like, you go to Rome, you have a nice lunch, you have some limoncello, you think about it, I could move to Italy. <laughs> Like once in your life, the bar is pretty low. Okay, so all told, what should we? What have we learned here? What can we say about New York State, its current state of affairs, how happy people are with it? No, I mean, look, the reveal preference thing is exaggerated but real. There has been a migration um, into red states. I want to run a regression to see how much of that is the politics versus other factors, right? Which is interesting. Like in some ways, like Republicans are very unpopular now, right? They're losing elections they're supposed to win, like 2022. Um, people are moving into red states, whether it's the weather or lower taxes or, 
or COVID stuff or, or I don't know, right? Or political affiliation, I think it's a real phenomenon, but like you're not having 30% move in the span of five years for sure. Yeah, I mean, one piece of data that I uncovered in thinking about this question and whether or not it's a good use of polling is why people are moving. Because they tried to get to the bottom of that in the New York Post, you know, front cover. Um, and what I, what I found was this. So people who move out of New York State typically save 15 times more from lower housing costs than from tax savings. On average, annual mortgage costs for median-priced homes are $18,300 lower in destination counties, a saving of 34% than in New York origin counties, which is to say, of all of the reasons people move, and of, of course, you mentioned tax season, folks complain about taxes all the time, it looks like housing might be the most significant. And when I looked at polling from Berkeley in California, I found that Californians were more likely to say they wanted to leave the state than New Yorkers, and the number one reason was housing. That makes sense, man. And there are like enormous gaps in cost of living, right? And people are probably being pretty rational in some ways, right? Especially in an environment where we have more work from home opportunities post pandemic. People are sorting a little bit more based on like fairly rational calculations about like, am I getting enough bang for the buck here in, in New York, for example? All right. But it makes us more special and self selected. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we could build more housing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, apparently, we have a lot of suburbanites in the room this evening. No, no, no cheers for more housing. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, informal poll right now. What percentage of you New Yorkers here tonight plan on leaving in the next five years? <gasps> oh wow, it's yeah, we got eight percent. Okay, what what percent plan on staying? <laughs> um. Okay, shoot. We had to do that segment all by ourselves without the help of chat GPT. Oh, okay. It was getting lonely on stage. Oh, it was like really uh. hard. Don't worry though. The next segment, we're going to have chat GPT here to help us. So I was thinking, you know, if we're really going to outsource my job to chat GPT, it's going to be have to keep people on their toes. It's going to have to be able to, you know, tell some jokes, get people laughing, you know, buying drinks at the bar, make sure they stay through all the way to the end of the show. And so I asked ChatGPT, tell a joke about the 538 Politics podcast. Uh-oh. Here's a joke. Why did the statistician listen to the 538 Politics podcast? Because he was looking for some pole dancing entertainment. <laughs> what do I you think, think? You're, you're rehired. Because like it doesn't, <laughs> like that's sort of a funny pun, but like it doesn't really fit the format of the chicken. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and next I thought, you know, we're, We've been working together for seven and a half years. We're used to ribbing each other. Let me see what ChatGPT comes up with when I say, tell a joke about Nate Silver. It says, sure, here's a joke about Nate Silver. Oh, no. <laughs> Why did Nate Silver start predicting the weather? Because he wanted to make his oh. election predictions look accurate. I mean, it literally... ChatGPT is out for blood. It's trained on the entire corpus of the internet, and, like, that's half of my Twitter feed, right? So <laughs> accurately reflecting the bullshit I deal with every day. But, of course, I wanted to be fair. So I also asked ChatGPT, tell a joke about Galen Druk. 
why did Galen Drew go to the <laughs> bank with a magnifying glass? To get his small change analyzed. <laughs> Folks, I don't know if you understand what ChatGPT is getting at here, but I do. <laughs> because I spent all of 2016 to 2020 asking Nate what to make of a 1.5 percentage point difference in Donald Trump's approval rating. <laughs> and this is what made me think I ought to join the 46% of Americans who believe that AI is going to end <laughs> humanity. Because this chatbot understands my life. <laughs> By the way, we're part of ChatGPT 538. Oh, yeah? We're like the 2,300th most biggest part of ChatGPT. Round of applause for uh, 538 and ChatGPT. Okay. All of this is to say, though, that artificial intelligence is on our minds. It can be funny. It can be serious. And Nate, over the past couple years, you've been in the process of writing a book about people who take risk for a living and the idea of risk in general and how we deal with it in public and private, et cetera. And you've been talking to a lot of people who work in this space. So I'm curious from your perspective how you're thinking about its effects on society going forward. I mean, I kind of think of it in terms of like how significant an invention is this? Is it like a once every year invention, a once every decade invention, a once every century invention, or like a once every millennial invention, like inventing fire or the wheel or something like that, right? And my distribution probability-wise is like it's much more than a once a year kind of invention, right? It's not the VCR or something, right? Um, it's somewhere on the rest of that scale. And where I don't quite know, you know, it seems like it's probably going to be... I mean, the over-underline is like the internet, I think, right? The internet's a really, really important invention. It remade society. Um, it's actually like a fairly high bar to clear. It's probably somewhere in the once-a-century type of invention type of, type of thing, right? That's my kind of prior, I think. I mean, I've seen comparisons to the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution. Yeah, that's, the, that's a millennial type of, type of shift, right? But like, but like, it may also be that it's like not even, that just happens faster, right? Like it's not even like necessarily a categorical change as much as like already in a world that's kind of chaotic and uncertain um, and where it kind of seems like people, I don't know how to put this, but like are kind of having trouble keeping their shit together already, right? What do to you like, mean? Uh, <laughs> to like just kind of press fast forward and now you're listening to the podcast at like 1.8x speed. What about in politics in particular? I mean, are you thinking about ways that this will change the way that campaigns are waged or politics is conducted? Um, look, I think we've seen in general, like one way to stylize way to like talk about what's happened to politics, like actually politics has gotten more efficient in ways that are bad for society, right? That like <laughs> politics gotten like really efficient at like teasing out people's grievances and making people angry, which you see if you ask people in polls, like, how do you feel about your personal life? Like, most people say, actually, it's going pretty well. What about the direction of the country? Oh, it's terrible. I, I hate it. I hate both parties. I hate everything that we're doing, right? Um, like, and I think maybe Chat GPT can kind of continue that, right? If it can kind of figure out um, the most effective negative pitch toward me, right, or something else, and kind of aggregate. I mean, it seems like ruthless efficiency is, is kind of very in line with where this is going. So there are boosters of artificial intelligence. There are doomers. There's a lot of people trying to make a buck. Politicians are trying to figure out how to craft laws to in some way regulate it. I mean, you, Mr. Silver, how do you tease out the signal from the oh, noise? Oh, thank you, Galen. 
Thank you, ChatGPT. Yeah, very ChatGPT question. In fact, no, actually, this one I wrote. Um, I mean, how do you try to like tease it all out? Because at this moment in time, as we talked about on the podcast, most Americans have no idea what's going on. Right. It's yeah, not yeah. a priority for them. Yet you have a lot of people saying, this is so, so, so important. I mean, it's probably a bad match that, you know, the average senator is, what, like 65 years old or something like that, and, and not very technologically equipped, right? Like, do our press, two presidents have even, do they even use, like, email, right? I mean, like, <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but not really, right? It's a complex technical issue at a moment of kind of enmity, disengagement between Silicon Valley and Washington. So, you know, I mean, I do think there might be at some point, like, a panic, right? The first, like, national security incident that's attributed correctly or not to AI, I think, could have, like, fairly profound effects. It's really just hit the radar screen of, like, politics, like, this past, like, six weeks, right? There was a question at a White House press briefing about AI, right? Whereas, like, the super, like, AI alignment nerds have been talking about this for, like, literally, like, like 20 years, right? Um, so it's kind of just been fascinating, like, being a fly on the wall um, and kind of having, like, an ear in, like, both camps just kind of seem like, this is so weird that now it's like kind of hitting the mainstream and like we're all going to die is like being published in Time Magazine and things like that. I think one thing too is because it was such like a nerdy kind of isolated community, the like talking points aren't very practiced, <laughs> you know what I mean? The community is not kind of sure what it wants exactly. We saw this a little bit with effective altruism where it kind of has gotten a lot more attention for positive and negative reasons. Um, and like it's not like the movement is not ready for prime time so much as that like they don't have the kind of polished talking points that we would see um, from a different movement that's been prepared for this encounter with kind of the broader political world. Well, and the other issue is that every time someone opens their mouth about the perils of AI, you're like, oh yeah, I've seen that movie. Like it all yeah. feels like a joke. And you're like, oh, okay, if that's real, then why aren't like werewolves also real? <laughs> No, but it does, like, I mean, it is a, a good argument for, like, watching science fiction, I think, actually, right? Um, but it's hard. I mean, I think one of the problems is, like, people are, are worried in the AI space about, like, making too many analogies to other technologies or anthropomorphizing too much. And it's kind of like, well, then how do I talk about it at all, right? You also have some of the debates we saw under COVID where, like, who has, like, relevant expertise in this space? You're making decisions that affect, like, all of society. It's not just the practitioners. It's, like, a mix of different types of people. And so like, it's all, I don't know, but it's gonna be like, you know, will it be one of the five most important issues in the 2024 campaign? I think probably not, almost for sure not, right? 2028, I might take even money that it would be, right? In 2032, I'd say, yeah, some AI related issue probably will be like a top issue. It has not polarized that much yet, which I think is good, right? Like the longer you can keep an issue from polarizing on Democrat versus Republican lines, the more hope you have to have some semblance of rational <laughs> policymaking. Um, but it will at some point, I think in ways that are a little bit unpredictable. Well, speaking of 2032, or for that matter, 2024, let's go back to getting my uh, small change analyzed, if you will. Um, because today we launched our 2024 endorsement tracker. Last week we launched our polling averages. And so first we're gonna talk about the polling averages and then we'll get to what launched today, which is the endorsement tracker. So according to our polling averages right now, Donald Trump has 50% support nationally. Ron DeSantis has 25% support nationally. 
Mike Pence has 6% support, and Nikki Haley has 4% support amongst likely Republican voters or Republican voters in general, depending on the poll. Now, there are nine months until the Iowa caucuses, and this is national polling, and of course we don't have a national primary, we go state by state. So given this information behind you, how would you describe the current state of the Republican primary? I'd say you have one frontrunner, and you have a second candidate who, if you kind of block out all the narrative stuff, is in a stronger position than most candidates are, right? But clearly there's like a lot more separation than there was like back at the start of the year when they were often tied in, in national polls, right? I mean, look, I don't think it's gone well for Ron DeSantis. We could diagnose the reasons why, right? I think people are getting a little bit overconfident about dismissing his chances now, right? Um, and that he is at 25%. Um, he's not Jeb Bush, who was at 12 or something like that, right? There are like real Ron DeSantis supporters out there, but like, I mean, he's taking from like all sides right now, right? And maybe he just was a one trick pony during COVID and hasn't shown like a second gear, but like, but you know, that's getting to be like a reasonable lead. It's a little bit smaller, I believe, in like Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, so you can both say people are become overconfident and that like, you know, the outlook has improved for Trump relative to, to uh, three months ago, six months ago, for sure. Well, this next slide is for me particularly striking. So according to polls taken from 1972 to 2016, a candidate with 50% support in the first half of the year before the primary, so right now, had a roughly 90% chance of winning the nomination. Of let course, me, this me, is a me, limited. Let me give you the problem, though. Right? This is a limited problem. Sample. Let me go to the screen. Oh, give, me a, give me a problem. Give me, me a problem. Go to the screen. Oh my God, Teacher Silver. All right, Mr. Silver. <laughs> so here's DeSantis. He's at 20 something, right? He's at like 30 percent. So what's 30 plus plus uh, 90? 120. They're going to be two Republican nominees. No, I don't know, but like. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think what this is saying is, if there is somebody at 50 percent, it's irrelevant if there's somebody at 30. That's not what it's saying. We're not fully yeah. irrelevant. No, but like. Um, usually if someone's at 50, everyone else is at like eight, right? To have someone at 50 and someone at 25 or 30, I think there's like not actually a great precedent for that. It's a tiny, tiny bit like Clinton Obama in 08, right? I mean, it seems weird to compare Ron DeSantis to Barack Obama. <laughs> but purely in a statistical sense, right? That's like not the worst analogy, I don't think. Other, other things particularly having to do, of course, this is a limited set. The modern primary is, as we say all the time, quite young. Are there things particular to this current primary environment that should give us pause about saying, wow, Trump has a 90% chance of winning the nomination? Um, Maybe. I mean, <clears> the <throat> fact that he's like kind of a... Anything other than what happened in lower Manhattan two weeks ago? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's, you know, uh, there's actuarial risk, right, I guess? That's one way to put it. But like, no, look, I mean, um, you know, I thought initially that support might be like a little bit soft. He's kind of like the default name, right? He was the nominee the last two times, right? You know, and if you ask the GOP, do you want to move on from Trump? Like a fair number of voters say yes, right? And so like, you know, I think he might, I don't think it was a ceiling on the support, but I think like there is a theoretical configuration in which someone else can like beat Trump, I think, but whether that's DeSantis, 
I don't know. And if it's not the same, it's like getting a little bit late in the year for someone else to emerge, I think. Uh, do, you, do you see anyone else who strikes you as somebody who would be able to challenge Trump from... I, I mean, if you think who's the third most the right likely nominee, it's trouble like uh, Tim Scott, I would think. But a distant third, I think. Okay, well, speaking of other ways of trying to get a sense of how the candidates are doing, today we launched our endorsement tracker, which has its own scheme, as folks can see behind me and for folks listening along at home. You get 10 points on this tracker for a former president or current national party leader, eight points if a governor endorses you, six points if a senator endorses you, five points for former nominees or candidates who have dropped out of the race. So say, for example, Pete Buttigieg endorsing Joe Biden in 2020, you get three points for members of the House of Representatives or mayors. So as of today, Trump has 221 points. DeSantis has 11 points. Mike Pence and Nikki Haley each have three points. First and foremost, you know, how important are endorsements in determining the outcome of a primary? Um, historically, they're a good but not great indicator, right? I mean, Biden's support in 2020 kind of was predicted by endorsements. Obviously, 2016, Trump had very few endorsements. Bernie Sanders, who didn't win, obviously, but like overperformed early polling, had very few endorsements, right? So um, it's like not the most important indicator, but like, yeah, if we had the 538 model cranked up, it would give Trump some extra credit or those 221 points that he has so far. And like more than Trump having like 221, like that's kind of what you'd expect. He has like, I don't know if it's hard earned loyalty, right? But a lot of people who like uh, were elected in the Trump era and in his kind of image, right? It's not shocking that he has 221. That 11 is pretty pathetic though, right? <laughs> Even in Florida, he's having trouble, although Trump's a Floridian also. Um, you know, and it's like, you're not really getting any kind of heavyweight DeSantis supporters at a moment where he is like a little bit cornered that could use could use like enthusiastic, no, this is my guy support. He's like not really getting it at this, I think not like vital time, but like, you know, the question is, is there enough time for someone else to emerge as the anti-Trump? And now it's maybe kind of like an inflection point in that, right? If DeSantis has like another bad month, um, you might see the kind of anti-Trump money saying, let's look at Tim Scott or Haley or Pence or draft Brian Kemp or something crazy, right? Yeah, I don't know, because he's like not able to like staunch the bleeding and like primaries are stupid because they have like a lot of like media driven momentum and narratives, people kind of feed off that momentum and it becomes circular. Um, but you have to do like something to interrupt that when you're not running for anything, it makes it harder, I think. He should probably declare if he's gonna declare. Um, but that 11 is, is pretty sad. So to add some context here, the 221 points that Donald Trump currently has is 11% of the total possible points that you can earn according to our endorsement tracker, which is to say there has not been some kind of elite consensus around Trump at this point in the process. However, it is pretty different from what happened in 2016. So as you can see in the slide behind me, Hillary Clinton was, of course, the runaway leader in terms of endorsements, points going in to the Iowa caucuses. Donald Trump was not even in third place in terms of endorsement points. And it wasn't until after he had already won 
the primary in New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada, that he even got a single endorsement from a congressional representative or governor. What's changed? I mean, he was president, right? Despite, no, he was president. Was he? Uh, <laughs> for four years, Galen. Despite not being necessarily someone who rewards loyalty, right? Um, I mean, like the whole imprint, the whole mold of politics has been affected profoundly by Trump for eight or nine years now, right? And so like that kind of, I think even the way like the media covers Trump, there's like a little bit of like, a little bit of kind of Stockholm syndrome, right? Um, he's kind of the, the person you know, the current media landscape, you know, who is seen as credible or who is not was kind of made in the Trump era. And so like, so I think kind of reflexively the media is, I think like rooting is not quite the right word. I mean, I think some like liberals think it'd be easier to beat than DeSantis, which is another interesting topic, right? Um, but like it just kind of, there's a sense to regard his moves as being like tactically smart and kind of there's still a kind of like myth of Trump invincibility and inevitability, which like DeSantis has not been able to, to overcome, right? And then like the moment he seemed most vulnerable was after the midterms and DeSantis, I think, maybe could have like declared then, right? I guess if there was you kind of like wait and you let Trump like kind of flail and, and then you come in later, right? But like, I think it would have been smarter to capitalize on the momentum that he had after, after last November. Wait, okay, I'm gonna stop you there because the idea that the media has maybe some sort of bias in favor of Donald Trump winning the primary runs counter to, I mean, what I thought going into this primary contest, which would be exhaustion from Trump and the desire to just cover a new story. I mean, this, we've been telling the same story for eight years at this point. I mean, I'm surprised anyone's even still here. <laughs> um, you know, like, I'm, you know, myself included. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, isn't, aren't people rooting for a different story? We're just gonna have Trump, Biden, 2024, and that's that? Well, I mean, this is part of why at some point there'll probably be a DeSantis and or other candidate comeback is because the cycle will kind of eat its own tail and be like, yeah, we are tired of this Trump inevitable cycle. We have to have some type of primary sending all these reporters out to Iowa and New Hampshire and so forth. So there might be a kind of shift at some point, right? But like, um, but I don't know, people have like muscle memory of, of Trump, I think. And you know, again, I find Trump uh, boring. <laughs> That's like not the only thing I'd say about him, but like MSNBC gets tremendous ratings of all things Trump and I just, I don't get it. There are a lot of things I don't get though. I don't get like ska, but like a lot of people like it apparently. <laughs> and like people like, I think people like stories about Trump. Um, and like DeSantis is kind of like in a weird middle ground where like he's not quite like, I don't know. Um, he's like not quite either a good enough villain for liberals or a good enough alternative to Trump. Or I don't know quite how to put it, but he's like somehow like minimizing something when he should be maximizing it. I, I don't know. So I should say, I mentioned that Trump is at 11%. And if we do see some kind of elite consensus around Trump in terms of endorsements, that could be significant. So looking at the data, when a candidate has gotten at least 15% of the overall endorsement points, they've only lost the nomination one time, and that was Hillary Clinton in 2008. In fact, endorsement points, according to our tracker and looking at polling averages since 1972, have been more predictive of who will end up winning the nomination than even the polling. Early endorsement points or later what? The day before the Iowa caucus. Okay. Does that sound, does that sound about right to you? I had an answer for you. Maybe. Okay, so as you mentioned, over the past week, 
there have been rumblings amongst GOP donors, the chattering class, whatever, about Ron DeSantis sort of not being ready for prime time, as the saying goes, et cetera. And now there's a qu people are questioning whether or not he should even get in the race, he whether he should sit it out, wait for another day. If you're Ron DeSantis today, what are the arguments for or against getting into the 2024 primary? There is no argument against it unless you never want to be president, really, right? Look, um, if he's not ready for prime time, he's not ever going to be ready for prime time, right? He's been elected governor of a major swing state twice. He was in Congress for a long time. He's had like a lot of national exposure, right? So you can like postpone running. Like I can like decide, the tax settlement was this week I filed extension, right? I can like postpone <laughs> when I like send my tax into the government, right? It doesn't reduce my tax liability at all. In fact, it accrues interest and penalties, right? Like if DeSantis is a candidate, he can like delay discovering that and proving that until like 2028 or 2032. But like, I don't see why he'd be like any stronger inherently. And like, and I don't think that like, you know, I don't think that Trump is inherently that formidable a nominee. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, there has been indication of some appetite for an alternative. DeSantis got up to like 30% in early this year in polls, 35% even, right? That's like pretty good. So to if you blow that, then like you just suck at politics and you're not gonna like ever be a good candidate. Wait, but hold on. Don't people always say that timing is everything in politics? I mean, our current president only won the nomination after trying three times. Okay, but look and at the like, people. I mean, look at Mitt Romney, look look but at Romney, John Romney, McCain, like all of these people Romney ran performed, multiple times. Performed at or above expectations, right? He was seen as one of the better candidates and wound up being one of the more viable candidates, right? I mean, think about the people who have like way underperformed expectations, right? Like Phil Graham or Rudy Giuliani. Um, Scott Walker. Scott Walker, Rick Perry twice, Fred Thompson, you know, Kamala Harris, right? Um, although maybe they should be the VP then, right? That would be one, you know, but like, look. Uh, you do you think Ron DeSantis is gonna be the vice presidential nominee after running against Donald Trump? Well, that would be the argument, is that he could be the nominee if he doesn't run against Donald Trump, right? Although, can you have two people from Florida? It's like a big constitutional thing. Um, mm. uh, Wait, there's a constitutional question about whether or not you can have two people from the same state on one presidential ticket? I believe so. If not, I'm an idiot, but you, you know, I am an idiot, so that's fine. <laughs> um, but no, like, you save face when you have no chance left, right? Or you save face when you kind of, there's no chance that you perform well, but like if you kind of quit when you're on a losing trajectory, you freeze into place in amber that you're a loser, right? Like if you didn't even run against Trump, you're like like tough guy, right? And the media narrative is that you suck and so you don't even bother to run. Like that's, that's not gonna like be a good resume builder for going forward, you look, you look weak. All right, well now is the moment in the live show that I have been waiting for. Uh-oh. Which is that we're going to introduce our first special guest, someone I know who it is, Nate does not know who it is. Um, but I'm curious, do you have any guesses? I, I have a couple of guesses, yeah. Do you wanna go ahead and guess? No. We'll only bring the guess out if you get it right. <laughs> I don't if you get it any, wrong, we're sending them home. I don't wanna show any favoritism toward who I guess, I'm, I'm not gonna guess, yeah. If you had to only, if I told you it's the one person you think it will be most, who would you guess? I mean, think about former panelists on the 538 podcast. Okay. And you live in New York still. There's, there, are, there are several of them. Yeah. Does anyone else, does anyone have balls enough to guess who the special guest is? <laughs> All right, Clem alone, come on out. <laughs>
hey there. Surprise, he apparently knows how to do a surprise. <laughs> Yeah, the DraftKings was like minus 400 Claire Malone, plus 125 Harry Enten. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for folks who don't know, Claire Malone is an alumna of the 538 Politics podcast and forever I friend think I'm an OG, of the pod. Right? You are an OG. You are the most OG there is. And I should also say now you are a staff writer at the New Yorker. Which round of applause? <laughs> I cover media and politics. If you're in either, tip me. You can send me an email, a DM, <laughs> story ideas. You cover- That's serious. Basically, if you, you wanna, you know, you know any uh, media folks who need to be put in their place, Claire Malone is now your person no, to contact. Not put, not put in the place, just, you know, <laughs> ask about. <laughs> okay, so I do wanna ask you though, how are you, like, how are you, welcome back to the podcast after like, Three years? Um, two years? Uh, I mean, I see you pretty regularly, so I'm going to play the role of ignorant host who doesn't know anything about you. What have you been up to for the past three years? Sure. Um, what have I been up to? Oh, it's been, has it been three years? Two, two, two and a half, half years? Yeah, two and a half years. True. What happened? Um, I had twins. That was probably my biggest life event. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. I've held both of them. <laughs> um... I got a new job. I got married. I did a podcast. Uh, the four, the big four, right? The big the four. Big marriage, kids, job, <laughs> podcast. Uh, yeah. I, it sounds like everything can happen for you once you leave the 538 Politics podcast. Maybe <laughs> I should think about it. Yeah, um, but yeah, I've been at the New Yorker for a year, a little over a year. Um, and it's great. It's a lot of fun. I actually, I, I worked just. Nate hired me from the New Yorker, where I was a fact checker. So it's kind of like a fun, fun return, and this is like a fun return. So you come back to back and forth, right? You're like LeBron yeah. James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know that you were down in Wilmington this week, getting ready to cover a trial that didn't end up happening. Yeah. What was what was the deal? What can you tell us about the Fox Dominion settlement? Well, it was almost 800 million, but not quite. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I went down to Wilmington on, by the way, I forgot how bright lights are. It's very disorienting, you know? No, it's great, because then you can't see anyone. It's true, and I haven't been, I, I was saying backstage, I haven't been to the Bell House in like five years, like a while, so this is kind of like a weird way to come back. Um, I went down on Sunday, and it was kind of like a, just like, I don't know if anyone here is from Wilmington, Delaware. Nothing against Wilmington, but it was it was pretty dead. Besides, like every media reporter in America, um, so <laughs> oh no. So it was a lot of like um, trying to figure out what lawyers were doing. The Dominion team was staying in my hotel. It was very like um, they kind of we kind of knew that there were settlement talks going on. Um, do people know the details of the Dominion case? I feel like this is five thirty eight audiences are pretty. Um, do like go for it. Go for it. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, Cliff do notes. The, yeah. Remember the twenty twenty election. <laughs> 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 okay, Dominion Voting Systems is a voting machine company, and Fox allowed people to, people, guests, their anchors, to spread lies about the voting machine company, saying that they'd stolen votes from Joe Biden. Dominion sued them for $1.6 billion, 
And uh, that's where all the, if you remember like the deluge of text messages from Tucker Carlson saying he thought Trump was a demonic force um, <laughs> that came out in February and March. That's from the discovery for that case. I'm sure there's some lawyers in here who will pedantically correct me on something at the end of the <laughs> this session. Um, but uh, yeah, the case finally went to trial. Defamation cases don't go to trial. There was jury selection on Tuesday. We were all just like, I was sitting in the courtroom with people. There was kind of cool to watch jury selection happen. And then after lunch, there was this two-hour break. We kind of knew that the, the lawyers from each side had been talking to each other. And it was actually really dramatic. I mean, it wasn't like Perry Mason, but it was like <laughs> whatever the white shoe litigator version of Perry Mason is. And the judge you know, said, this is resolved. And there was like a gasp in the courtroom, <laughs> literally. <laughs> uh, and everyone just like rushed out to call their editors because you're not allowed to use like a, a cell phone or internet in a, cor in a, in a courtroom in, in Delaware. Um, yeah, and it just was kind of, you know, they literally had the kind of trite courthouse steps press conference where they said, you know, our client is vindicated and this is how much we got, which was $287.5 million and no uh, on-air apology from Fox. 787. Sorry, yeah, 787. At the very end, did Gwyneth Paltrow lean over to Rupert Murdoch and say, I wish you well? <laughs> I was, I mean, I will say I wish, I was really looking, I was looking forward to covering a trial. I've never really covered a trial before. I was looking forward to, I mean, the thing about, like, writing, like, doing politics and now doing media is, like, it's very, those are two areas where people are so you know, guarded by PR people. So to get those unguarded moments or those moments where they're just themselves exposed in front of a, um, a very smart lawyer, um, I thought that would have been exciting to see Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch and Tucker Carlson to see if, you know, for, uh, for Tucker Carlson in particular, I was kind of interested to see if his, however you feel about him, he obviously has like some sort of charisma. And I was kind of curious how that would work on a jury. Um, so I think, you know, for me, selfishly, my, my human curiosity, I was disappointed not to see that. I think for a lot of people, obviously, they wanted to see six weeks of public flagellation of um, Fox and Fox Corp executives. But, um, you know, that's a, that's a big chunk of change. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you talked about the media sort of swarming Wilmington and what this could have all meant if it played out in the press over six weeks, you know, you're now sort of shining a spotlight on the press and you talked about the press's reaction to Trump. Do you always have such nice suits? Uh, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, Sorry. This is what happens after you host the 538 Politics <laughs> podcast for seven and a half years. <laughs> um, but thank you. Suit Supply, sponsor this podcast, right? <laughs> um, I mean, please that would do. would be nice. Please, please do. Um, <laughs> it would be nice. That and like, uh, I, I have enough mattresses for a life. Me and all of my friends now have mattresses. <laughs> Where's your suit? You're not wearing a suit. I'm not wearing a suit. It's, you know, This like, is very like, yeah. French. I don't know what, you know. It's rag and bone, I think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Sorry, you were asking a question. I wanted to say, by the way, I look, the guy in the front row and I match. We're both wearing our... 5e, 5e Fox Oh, is that, that's, that's vintage, right? Vintage, yeah. True, yeah. Head, true heads really know what's up. <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, you wrote an article after going downtown for Trump's indictment a couple weeks ago yeah. and sort of talked about how the media is covering Trump, I guess I would call it maybe Trump 3.0. There was the Trump campaigning in 2015, 2016. There was 
the press covering Trump in the White House and running for re-election, and now he's a civilian again. And how is the media, from your eye, approaching it this time around? Okay, well, it's not Trump 1.0, which is, I started, here's memory lane, I started at 538 December 2015, and you guys sent me to Iowa in January of 2016, which is when Trump won the Iowa caucuses. So, like, I very much, like, it's, a, it's like a very distinct time period for me. And I think if we think about late 2015, 2016, that spring, that winter and spring, it was just like, you know, the bananas TV coverage that we all kind of, like, harken back to. And obviously, I think the White House years, people got more discerning, li like, liber like MSNBC got more discerning about how they were covering Trump um, as far as like airtime. What was interesting about the, the indictment was, I think it was CNN that literally did the, like, you know, like if you're on Twitter, which I think this audience is, like, <laughs> you're not too good for Twitter. Um, <laughs> who's on Mastodon? Oh, interesting. <laughs> not me. Um, they did like the, you know, CNN, and I think like a lot of the major networks did like the white Bronco shot of like, you know, um, there was a guy, there was a cameraman in a motorboat right by LaGuardia that like, got the plane landing and then they like tracked them on the Grand Central Parkway and then it, you know so it was like they had these aerial shots of Trump going to Trump Tower and that felt very 2016 and um, I will say like so, so the piece that I wrote I wasn't actually inside the courtroom because I, that was a really 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 hard um, seat to get I think there were only 10 reporters that made it actually inside the courtroom um, but the scene outside was I mean, I don't know if anyone here was down there. It was like... I was. <laughs> were you? Yeah, I was. Wait, we didn't run into each other. I know. With uh, Tony and Vanessa as well. Oh. Once I found out you were, I saw on Twitter afterwards that you were there. I was really sad that we didn't run into you. Yeah, I was tweeting sanctimoniously. I was yeah. talking to the naked cowboy. <laughs> I was like doing exactly the thing I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> okay, so now I'm about to make a sanctimonious series of comments about journalists like That Caleb. apply to me. <laughs> no, it was, it was like, okay, it... it Actually, the memory it stirred in me was, okay, so the scene was um, in front of the courthouse, there's this, um, you know, big public park, and it was split between, like, the Trump support, the, I mean, NYPD had literally done, like, the barricades, and there were Trump supporters, and there were, you know, y like, you know, your liberal moms, and um, from, like, New Hampshire who had come down, and, and, and they were all kind oh, of... Oh, and my dad, my dad, I won't tell you which side he was on. Is your dad here? He's here tonight, and he was down there that day as well. Okay, <laughs> so there you go. Um, and, and it was kind of like, um, there were so... There weren't that many protesters because, um, I mean, like, New York is expensive to get to. There's, no, I'm, like, I'm actually serious about this. There's high tolls, like... Um, there's 30,000 police officers in the street who are gonna prevent you from January 6th thing. I mean, um, and so there weren't, there weren't that many protesters. There were tons of media, like an embarrassing amount of media, and they were all doing the thing that, where they were like, you know, and people were like acting a fool, right? So there was like, and, and you could see when like little fist fights would break out. I don't think there were that many, but little things would break out and you would see like, 30 reporters swarming to it. And I was, I was like, oh no, <laughs> like we're still doing it. And I mean, some of that is like, I get it. Like you have to cover the scene and, but it, there was something to me that was kind of like, you know, 
seven years later, we're still doing the same exact thing. Because it felt very reminiscent of the parking lots of these, you know, places in Iowa or New Hampshire where there were Trump rallies. And it was just like, you know, a bunch of people who were kind of there to be exhibitionist and, you know, hardcore Trumpy. And it's like, we're still doing this? Like, it, it, that, that, that part of it felt pretty bad to me. And just the number, the sheer number of media that were just kind of out there to be like, I, I get it to a certain extent, but it felt it felt um, it felt off to me. That ratio, you can never have like two media for everyone, like normal person or not normal person, right? But you know, non-media. It can never be right in like any circumstance. There were four brides though that I saw, which was nice. <laughs> None of whom knew. It, I actually did find it. It was like, yeah, there are more important things happening today than Trump being indicted. But it was, you know, I, f I also felt bad for them. <laughs> I mean, how do you think about the way that this type of coverage shapes the outcome? Because I think after 2016, folks were like, you, you know, CNN, you aired all his speeches uninterrupted. You know, the media was kind of created his rise in the polls and, you know, ultimately got him elected. I don't know that you can actually claim that empirically, but that was some of the criticism. But then watching his presidency, it became pretty clear, as ChatGPT was joking about, I spent a lot of time watching Trump's approval rating for four years, and it seemed like the more the media paid attention to him, the worse he did. And when he just you mean kind once of- once he was in the White House? Once he was in the White House. And like when he would just kind of like shut up for a while, he would be, his approval would rise and like the economy was doing well and there were reasons to be relatively happy about the state of affairs, but it was sort of like Trump was getting in his own way and the media doing all this coverage of Trump and you know, much, much, much less coverage of Biden seemed to be actually hurting Trump. I mean, I think there's a difference between Trump in the White House and Trump on the campaign trip. Like, <clears throat> I agree with you where, where, when the media wasn't covering, when he was acting you know, dull or doing like not that interesting things. <laughs> like, I gotta say, some of the things he did were really funny. Like, do, do you remember? Do you remember the Mickey D's in the in the White House? That was that yeah. was genuinely extremely funny. <laughs> what? He's massively entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But that's but that's kind of the point, right? It's like so Trump in the White House. I agree with that point. But Trump on the campaign trail is like, I mean, he's good at it, right? Like he's. He's, I don't know how many people here have been to a Trump rally or like a Trump speech, but he's like funny in a room, you know? Like he is, he- No, he's got good comic timing. He's good comic timing. He often like, you know, he, he needs some, like everyone needs an editor and <laughs> Trump does or Trump speechwriter does. But like he's, he's, um, he's just good at, you know, the carnival barking part of campaigning. And it's like, I mean, there, there is something like I get why people find it fun to watch or engaging to watch or why they... W so I think, like, the... And, like, when that blots out the sun, it makes it harder for other candidates to campaign against him, say, in a Republican primary or something right, like Right, like, like Ron DeSantis right now. I mean, like, I guess the kind of conventional wisdom knock on him is that, like, not very charming, putting fingers, like, a bit of a weirdo, and um, Trump's gonna, you know, like, be able to really... Like, he's, he's gonna be a socially awkward presence and, like... All, all politics is political pheromones, and if you, you know, if you think one guy just like, you like the cut of his jib better, you're gonna vote for him. And I guess his suits. His suits. <laughs> he wears cowboy boots. That's that's the one thing I know about his sartorial choices. So if Suit Supply sponsors Ron DeSantis, then it's a whole new. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I think the question was like, how does 
Trump media coverage 3.0 shape what we're about to witness? Well, I do, I do, think, um, I do think most networks, including Fox, will air less of his um, campaign rallies. They'll, they won't do the full thing. They'll do little snippets. Um, Rupert Murdoch like, pretty openly dislikes Trump. Um, the New York Post is very sort of anti-Trump and has been for the past you know, several months. So I think they're not particularly inclined to you know, air all Trump all the time, but he's also good for business, so, so Fox will air him. But I think the other networks will do a little bit less of that, that earned media. Um, I think the thing that will be hard for media organizations is threading the needle between um, fact-checking all the obvious misinformation stuff that's out there and also still making sure that um, right-wing or conservative or middle-of-the-road readers or listeners or viewers don't think that they're being attacked by the media. And maybe it's an impossible needle to thread. I, I'm kind of of that... Um, Mindset. I mean, I, I actually think um, it's sort of a like a it's a lose lose, and that um, we'll we'll you know yeah, we'll, we'll do our best efforts, but it, it probably won't. Like, oh, we'll actually just intercept this claim and fact check it before it is aired, right? Like, I think people, um, I don't know, like the whole misinformation beat. I think people should be like more empirical about like what actually works and what and what doesn't, right? Um, you know, maybe the Stentorian New York Times kind of neutral voice actually is more persuasive to a wider range of readers. Yeah. Even though, like, you know, I think, yeah, you know, speak to the power, whatever else, right? But like, but like that model was chosen for a reason, and I think also like people have maybe like, I don't know, it's a it's a fine line to walk. And the Times has done an up. They've done little tweaks of their form in the past couple of years. Well, now they're they'll say like. Um, in a, in a story, we need to make sure there are a certain number of sources, or this is, yeah. or this, like, these people went, they'll, they'll, like, do a little more explanatory, this is how the story got made, and I think that's good. Um, I think there are other models, like, the, I think I mentioned this in the piece that I, that I wrote right around the indictment, like, there are models that, that um, people like Margaret Sullivan have suggested where it's, like, there's a, there's a Pennsylvania radio, public radio station that anytime they interview um, a politician who repeated Trump's lies after the 2020 election, they'll just like note it and, and continue with the interview or the, the, the thing. And, the, and the basically it's sort of like, we're not going to normalize this. And I think that's actually an interesting um, formula. I also think it would make a right wing or even moderate or even a liberal person be like, oh my God, how sanctimonious. And I think that really yeah. is, like I don't think we can write that off because it's like, yeah, a lot of, like, a lot of journalists are sanctimonious. I mean, I'll, I'll include myself occasionally, <laughs> or maybe like 60% of the time. I don't know. But it's, it's like, it's very, I think it's very hard, like, because we're basically asking yeah, people to I like mean, us, and we're kind of unlikable. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the less popular professions, right? There's been low trust in media for yeah. a long time. Um, but yeah, they're like, uh, the, oh, we know better, and we're going to, like, determine what your meal is, how much spinach you have, and how much sausage you get, and whatever else, right? Like... I think people have an intrinsic distrust for that, right? Um, I don't know if I want to itemize stories over which things I got the media got, got right or got wrong, right? But like, I think people like people. I think come still for facts more than interpretation, 
and you have to like go through the maze of interpretation before you get to the facts, I think it's like probably a bad, a bad empirical strategy, and I would say maybe a bad journalistic strategy to some extent. Although the one thing that's like you can't get around in journalism is like, even if you're if you're you know writing for like USA Today or like a, a newspaper story, a newspaper that doesn't have a particular like, oh, that's a liberal rag or like, you know, the Wall Street Journal, those hacks. Like, even if you're writing for a place like that, you are, you are always exerting your own opinion or view of the events by what you choose, by what you quote, course, by what yeah. order. And I think that like, readers are smart in that they, they sense what we're trying to do. So it's like, yeah. I think it's, I mean, I don't know, it's kind of like the Supreme Court and the media are sort of in the similar like, yeah. The ratings keep on falling, and like, how do you turn around? Maybe you don't. <laughs> I mean it. Like, no, but like, treat, I mean, treat the customer, the reader as smart is, I think, one of the core ideas behind 538, right? Because like, even if the people aren't smart, no, notable of the people publication. <laughs> 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 Sorry. No, but I think we treat our readers as like being no, I, oh, I, look, intelligent. No, I agree. I mean, but, but like, it take, like, it takes a particular kind of person to want to like open up a, a data website. For sure. <laughs> and I mean, look, having had access to the podcast at 538.com email address for seven and a half years, uh, people are pretty clear about, I don't want to be told what to think. And you sort of crossed a boundary in that instance or whatever. Like people will say, I want to hear the polling. I want to hear the analysis, the historical analysis, like when you can bring facts to bear. But I hear pretty often when people feel like we've like messed up. So well, and, and I get I, it. And I also think, um, I mean, the the sort of like inartful way to say what's happened in media over the past two or three years since Trump went out of office is there's you see these like media startups like Semaphore or Puck in particular are coming to mind where they're kind of like there's some um, undercurrent of like we're gonna like we're gonna push back a little bit against the like liberal woke media in like a way that's you'll find acceptable like mainstream liberal you know like mm -hmm. we all we know that you're annoyed by sanctimonious articles and we're not gonna yeah. write them in that way or we're gonna try to tell you like here's the fact part and here's my opinion and like you know i think like some of those experiments are successful and some of them aren't and some of them like most of them are still like but like, I'm, I'm like baked. i'm very much on the side where i think it's like 80 percent demand driven and 20% supply driven, right? Um, you see in like Substack, right? Where like um, a certain style that's like appealing to people left of center but it's like not super woke, right? Has done like very well on Substack relative to like how these people were making money previously. And like, so that might've been like under indexed by the legacy but media. Totally, I agree with that. But the problem is that like, what is, you know, like, okay, you rate Iglesias' Substack, and that's, like, where you get a lot of your news. I mean, like, let's say 2 million people who are conservative listen to, you know, like, Matt Walsh's podcast as their Substack. Yeah. And I think that's, like, what's, I think that's kind of the problem, is, like, we're all, like, the business model is actually kind of sorting itself out. In media, it's like, oh, okay, it's subscription-based, it's niche it's, you're not gonna get, besides like the consolidating big New York Times, which is a media company, not a newspaper, everyone's like media business model is niche, which is actually like good for business, but bad for society, I think. Yeah, I think we're back at perhaps a comment that Nate made early on, which is that politics 
contemporary politics and potentially AI will be very good at finding efficiencies <laughs> in politics and in media and basically making people like feeding people Wait, what they want and I, making people more angry and discordant as a result. Are you are you an AI skeptic? I, I was thinking of this the other day. Like I, I'm not like I'm not saying I'm against AI. This is just my like unformed thought, which I think I'm allowed to say at the beginning of like the AI debate, which will last until I live to 102. But like, I mean, I'm a I guess I'm a bit resentful that like the direction of humanity is now being driven by a bunch of like nerds who are like, oh, what if we do like and, and I, I mean that I mean that I'm being I'm being funny, but I'm also kind of like F- you. You're about to you're about to like Microsoft put, put, Bing to, is gonna no, end but the... you're about to put millions and millions of people out of jobs. Like at a certain point Well that it, that it, I think is a little bit bad, less clear. Isn't it, isn't it bad for humanity? Like what's wrong like and they're all like, well we have to push to the scientific limits and it's like I don't know, do, like literally, do we? Yeah, no. I, so I was, I've been like reading it's, it's, articles. Wait, I have one more, one yeah, yeah. more diatribe. It's like the sort of like, <laughs> s- no, but it's, it's like the sick psychology of people who went to like Harvard and MIT and Stanford who are like, I must achieve because like there's nothing after this and like we just have to like push it to the limit. And it's like, I, I'm actually not sure. It's like it's, have a coffee, smoke a cigarette. And, I mean, like I genuinely mean that. Yeah. yeah. Like it's 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 uh, <laughs> it's sort of deranged. Wait, so, wait, wait, hold on. And no, then you but can like go it, on. I'll let you direct the show. Do you, like, how do you feel about AI in front of all these people? Uh, I think AI is more likely to kill us than climate change. That's a quote of the evening. <laughs> all right. And with that, we are going to move on to our trivia portion of the <laughs> evening. <laughs> Take and your pill and forget what we just this, said. <laughs> this is the part of the evening where we are going to invite a guest on stage oh, wow. who will even be a surprise to me. And that is because, dear audience, it is one of you. Okay, so. Mm. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> so the, the, the process that we're about to use was devised by an AI itself. I'm just kidding, it was me. Um, so, so if you want to play trivia with us, and that means you have to come on stage and interact with us. Raise your hand to answer this question. We started recording this podcast in January of 2016, the same month we sent Claire to Iowa um, to watch Donald Trump win the Iowa caucuses in her, your first month on the job. Didn't How many episodes of the podcast have we published yes. since check. Cruise won the Iowa caucuses. February. Oh, it was because there was, was a moment. There was a moment where like, Cruz. oh, we're going to be saved from our famous like Trump skepticism by Ted Cruz of all people, right? Oh, yeah, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then New Hampshire, and then it's all. Ted Cruz is one of the country's most popular podcasts. God Did bless. you know that? Wait, really? God yeah, bless. or maybe uh, maybe one of the most popular like political podcasts. Okay, Continue, sorry. okay, okay. So raise your hand if you would like to answer this question to compete with us. How many episodes of the podcast have we published since January 2016? So the way we're going to do this is you right there. Can you guess? Uh, 450. 450? You? You? 480. 480. Okay, so of those three people, you're the closest. So you're going to move on in this so process. You're still alive. Keep, you're still alive. Keep your hand raised. Okay, what's your guess? 537. 537? <laughs> <laughs> Who else would like to guess? Okay, you in the back. Th- right, and what would you like guess, to guess though. this time around? 545. What did you guess? 537. Okay, you continue on. You're the closest. <laughs> um, who else would like to guess? Okay, you right there. 565. 565? 
Okay, you also can take it. <laughs> you guys are not very inventive. There's what a pattern here, people. There's so many numbers out there. Okay, uh, who else would like to guess? You would like to guess? 800, okay. Anyone else? You in the back? 750, and what do you guess? 672. Okay, 750, you're continuing on. Who else would like to compete? Okay, you in the back? 910. Anyone else? Okay, you? 775. 775, and who, was, who moved on? Guess again? Uh, 775 moves on, okay. Uh, you right there? 793, you right there? Uh, 774. You move on? Uh, this is like the worst game night ever. So, I have to say, we were sitting here during our mic check trying to figure out how to actually do this effectively, and we're like, let's just do higher, lower, higher, lower. And Nate's like, no. No, I have a plan. This I had the higher so lower. You well. rejected it. You thought higher lower will converge too fast. Okay. Right? <laughs> seven, so it was complicated. Seven seventy four. Who else? Anyone? Anyone? You right there? It's seven seventy one. Come on up. <laughs> Look, you gotta experiment with new formats sometimes. I'm sorry, of course it's the guy who gave us a percentage that <laughs> got this. Um, okay, so what's, who, who are you? Hi everybody, my name is Rod. Rod, did Suit you Supply make your something? suit? You seem like, okay. No, I, I had an event at, I had an event did it? at work. Suit Supply. <laughs> we found somebody. Wait, quick, this, this, this would be a fun, wait, it's Rod? Yes. What does Rod do for a living? Well, yeah, I know. Yeah. I was gonna no, no, we have to guess. Oh, we have to guess. Um, Nate, what does Rod do for a living? Wait, you're wearing what you do for a living on your chest, I you think. Oh, you work at the UN. Oh, well, that's lame okay. that we can't, get, we can't guess. Um, I could be a spy. Yeah, are you a spy? I'm a bad spy. <laughs> uh, what, what country do you represent? What delegation? So I, I work for the, the one nobody likes, the UN itself. Okay. <laughs> Not from a country. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Is there anything else you want to tell us about yourself? Do you have to pay your parking tickets? Or are, you, are, you like are you allowed to kill yeah. people? I, I only have immunity <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the execution of my duties. So what was Nikki Haley like? So my, a <laughs> good friend of mine, one of my best friends, was her staff assistant. And? What was Nikki he Haley said like? she was nice, but all her staff were crazy and scary. Um, are you ready to? Are you ready to play? Let's do it. All right, awesome. We're so happy to have you. Okay, so. Yeah. 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 Come on. Give it up for Rod. I feel like I had a dream last night where like the special guest just blew everyone else out of the wall. Like you're oh, gonna I win. Th I like, think, you're I gonna win. I think it's like a really. It's a big possibility. Rod, yeah, I think yeah. Rod's gonna win. Okay, so. Um, first question, we're going to go, we'll like rotate a little bit. It's all about New York City. Okay. Okay. You're going to go first, Claire. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. Okay. According to YouGov, New York City is the sixth most popular city in America. Popular or populous? Popular. Oh. 58 per come on. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I know it's the biggest. 58% <laughs> of Americans have a positive view of it. 20% have a negative view. Can you name a city that is more popular? Than New York? Yes, according to this poll. Austin. Nate? Los Angeles? He, ha oh, he no, has I have, a mic. He yeah, has a mic. Yeah, yeah. Th th thank you, though. Yeah. Go ahead. 
New Orleans. Mm. Okay, none of you got one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, do we go around? We're going to go, we'll go, we'll go one more time. St. Petersburg. <laughs> <laughs> you just heard it. No. For, for the record, I f- love Florida. Unironically love Florida. <laughs> Nate? Las Vegas. Stay on brand. Oh, that's a good one. That's good. Okay. Chicago. Nate gets a point. Number one most popular city in America is Nashville. Number two is San Diego. Number three is Denver. Number four is Miami. And number five is Las Vegas. Can I get a half a point for being close to Miami? (laughs) All right. So Nate has one to zero to zero. Uh, Next question, Nate, you're going to kick us off. Joe Biden won the majority of the vote in every single precinct in Manhattan in 2020, a distinction that he does not hold for any of the other four boroughs. In which Manhattan neighborhood was his precinct with the lowest level of support? I feel like there's an obvious one I'm missing. Uh, I mean, Upper East Side. Is Staten Island a neighborhood? Um, that's very cute, but Staten Island isn't in Manhattan, Rod. <laughs> oh, oh, in Manhattan. Okay, sorry, sorry. Uh, in Inwood. Inwood. Okay. What happens if I guess the same thing as another contestant? You can you can guess you can guess the same thing if you want to. It would be you know. It's one point. of two neighborhoods. It's either well. You got you got it. Mm. Yeah, I'll go with the Upper East Side. None of you got it. Is it the financial district? We're gonna, we'll, we'll do one more go round. We'll do one more go round. Nate? Fuck, wait, you just fed me. What do you mean? Now they're gonna take my answer. Nate? Uh, uh, maybe Nate thinks it's stupid. You should know this. Yeah, well, I where, think you should know this. You live okay, in where are there a lot of like Orthodox Jews in Manhattan? The Upper West Side. But, but they're not, the Upper but West it's, Side. Not, it's not Hasidic. Uh, Lower East Side, crowd suggestion. Okay, Rod? Can I say the same as Nate? Uh, if you want to, you can. Okay, Lower East Side, okay. I am gonna go with the financial district. Okay, so none of you really got it, but you, <laughs> I included, there were three things that you could have said and you got one of the things that I included, so here it is. The answer is two bridges, and it included both Chinatown and the Lower East Side. And so for context, Biden won 59% of the vote in the two bridges neighborhood. Trump won 40%. The neighborhood is 64% Asian, 14% Hispanic, 12% African American, and 9% white, according to Niche.com's analysis of census data. Are you surprised? No? Uh, Yeah, I am. Yeah. 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 Are you surprised? I almost said Chinatown. Just mixing it up. Well... (laughs) Almost only counts in. I'm going for all wrong answers here. <laughs> That's the kind of chaotic energy I appreciate. Can I have another beer, please? <laughs> you heard her. Okay, so it is Nate two, Rod one, Claire. Nail but Zero. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm rooting for you. Okay, Rod, you're starting this one off. In the spirit of tomorrow's holiday, for my dad, because he doesn't know what tomorrow's holiday is, it's 420. Um, 
According to the most recent city data published in 2019, before it was broadly legal, what percentage of New York City residents used cannabis in the past year? This is the only citywide data we have on cannabis use. I'm sorry, but it is from 2019. So I'll give you, I'll, I will tell you that up front. 62.4. Okay, I admire the audacity. This is like closest. This is closest. This is closest. Oh, here, while you're thinking. Oh, wow, you really took me literally. Thank you. Okay. I'm not, I mean, yeah, I'm not above it. Thank you very much. Is it my turn? Or is this like a yeah, snake? Uh, yeah, it's your turn. Um, 18%. What's the etymology of the survey? Where's it from? <laughs> it's New York City data. It's conducted by the New York Department of I don't know. The, it's the, it's I think the, that might lower it, right? Because they might think that you're kind of their narcs, right? I, I'll go... I'll just go 40%. What's that? Four zero, 40. Wow, I live in a different Okay, year. who do you, okay, so it was 64.5, 40, and 18. Who do you guys think got it? <laughs> What's that? This is what, Claire, like, by a long shot. You guys, My goodness, people. We're all squares, we like booze. 16%. This is a drinking city. Yeah, well... Is, no, it is, right? And, it's and a, like, it's... <laughs> <laughs> okay, but so... It, it is for LA. I mean, there are, like, literally 400, like, bodegas with yeah, exotics. No, it's definitely, it's definitely if you, It's definitely higher now. If you live now, in Chelsea, I live in Hell's Kitchen, in those neighborhoods, like, every other storefront is now selling weed. So I understand, you know, but, like... You know, it's you have to understand city. your own personal biases when trying to analyze the world and account for that. I'm sorry, Nate. Um, but I'll say this. So it is 16% according to New York City data. But according to Gallup, 12% of Americans smoked weed in 2019, the year that this survey was conducted. And it increased to 16% last year. So that's, you know, like a 33% increase. If you apply that to New York City's numbers, you know, just to like rough math, it would be more like 21%. I mean, you still got it regardless. When but was the last time Rod ingested marijuana? <laughs> 10 p.m. <laughs> God bless. Do you have a vape with you now? Uh, no, I smoke the bud. No vape. Oh, okay. The vaping um, is bad for you. Wait, I have one more. Hold on. I recorded one more data point. It was a 2018 study from CETO found that more marijuana is consumed in New York than any other city on Earth. It estimates that a grand total of 77.44 metric tons is consumed within the five boroughs every year, which is about the same weight as the Endeavour Space Shuttle, another <laughs> conduit that's taken humans to space. <laughs> okay, so it is Claire 1, Rod 1, Nate 2. Um, and we just start, who did we start with that time? Rod. So we're back to you, Claire. Okay. Which member of Congress represents New York State's wealthiest congressional district? Which no, guys, shh. <laughs> he can hear you. Which member of Congress represents New York's wealthiest congressional district? district? Uh, Carolyn Maloney. She's not in office anymore. Oh, can I? <laughs> <laughs> I don't work for 530 anymore. I don't have to know this uh, okay, can I, get, can I do a redo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jerry Nadler replaced her in, in terms of representing Uptown to answer that question. Then I'll go with Nadler. Okay, Nadler. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, uh, uh. Um, okay, so... Hmm, 
Any other guesses? Well, he kind of, yeah. Is Dan He's Goldman? Goldman. You, you, okay, you guess Dan Goldman? Goldman. Fine, well, I'll answer the same thing. Goldman. <laughs> <laughs> um, does anyone in the audience Wait, know? is it like an upstate district? They all know it. It is George Santos. Uh, <laughs> A.K.A. America's congressman. A.K.A. Anthony DeBolder. A.K.A. Katara Ravash. <laughs> um, Wait, what is Dan Goldman's district, though? Dan, Dan Goldman, funny you ask, Dan Goldman represents the district we are currently in right now, which is lower Manhattan Dan, Dan and Goldman, are you northern here? Brooklyn. <laughs> He loves giving press conferences. No, but George Santos is. George, if you want to come out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I bet he listened in 2016. So, uh, <laughs> George Santos? Yeah. Well, he was busy. No, I don't. No, that yeah. was his guitar Ravash era. Yeah. I don't think he was listening to it. Um, so, New York's third congressional district, which represents parts of Queens and the North Shore of Long Island. It's the wealthiest in New York. It's the fourth wealthiest in the nation. The median household income is $131,000. Claire and Rod, you're both at one. Nate, you are at two. We are moving on. Uh, we're back to Nate. According to the most recent Quinnipiac poll in February, what percentage of New Yorkers approve of the job that Mayor Eric Adams is doing? 39. 52. 60. Nate, you are closest. The answer is 37% approve of the job that he is doing, 43% disapprove. But he just appointed a rat czar. <laughs> <laughs> Who I will have you know, and this is not a joke, I reached out to the mayor's press office to ask if the rat czar could be here tonight. Had she said yes, Rod, she would be competing with us instead of you. Oh. But lucky for you, she said no. <laughs> boo, boo, yeah, boo. Okay, it is one, one, three. We are moving on. We're back to Rod. Okay, this one's a fun one. Okay, you have to hear the whole thing. You have to hear the whole thing. The House Judiciary Committee held a hearing on crime in New York City this week with the message that the city is dangerous and soft on crime. The hearing was chaired by Republican Representative Jim Jordan, who represents suburban Columbus, Ohio. Woo. The homicide rate was 5.2 per 100,000 people in New York City in 2022. What was it in Columbus, Ohio? 8.4. Claire? bias about Columbus is it's basically a suburb um, but like you're framing this question in a very biased way I know <laughs> what was it what was in New York City five point five point two is Columbus downtown or city proper yeah what was Columbus the city proper okay. Columbus city proper ten percent okay so we got ten and eight point two I'm just gonna go eight point one you got it, Claire. Woo! This is like a weird thing to chip me. Wow. I don't know if we should cheer for yeah, this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this it's, the murder rate? Yeah. 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 yeah we won't cheer for this one, but I will say, just in case you were wondering, it's about three times as high as New York City, so it's 15.4. <laughs> we don't stand for that language in the bell house. <laughs> okay. It is three, two, one. Uh, and we are moving on. Oh, this is a fun one. 
This is a fun one. Uh-oh. Um, okay. New York City just hired a Ratsar, as I mentioned. <laughs> or director of rodent mitigation to take care of its long-running rat infestation. According to the most recent estimates, how many rats are living in New York City today? How many rats are living in New York City? Oh, you did go first. How many people live in the metropolitan area? Um, the metropolitan like area is like, tw it was like 25 million or something. Um, it, I mean, I know it's eight and a half million in New York City, but if we're talking about like the greater New it's York like area. It's like a McKinsey consulting test question, right? Like yeah. <laughs> um, there are, I don't know, there, there are five million rats. Rod's face, he's like, I'm getting, I'm getting out of here. Um, Nate? Are there, more, there aren't more rats than humans, do you think? Yeah. By the way, fun, fun story. I once was walking down the street in Brooklyn and saw two rats <laughs> Literally, and they were doing it missionary. <laughs> Which I just think you wouldn't expect. And that, folks, is the 538 Politics Podcast for the evening. Thank you all for coming. Cue the outro music. I am no longer employed by this organization. <laughs> Um, I saw a seagull flying with an entire piece of pizza the other day. <laughs> also sexual. <laughs> um, I saw a cockroach doing blow on my kitchen counter. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me how that got there. <laughs> um, okay, you didn't, you didn't tell me a number. For, 40 million. 40 million. <laughs> I have no idea. Sorry, 41. No. 41 million? That's just incorrect. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Can I change 20? No, no, no you no. can't change. No. You can't use feedback and then, yeah. Um, you can introduce a resolution. Okay. Audience, who do you think got it right? Yeah, Claire got it right. It's 2 million. You want to know why? I've actually done a lot of the, uh, rat reading. <laughs> I, and I actually, like, does anyone remember when Eric Adams did the rat press conference? Honestly, greatest, he, he drowned a rat in like chemical fuel. Oh yeah, I remember when he was still when he was Brooklyn Borough president. president. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, he got all the press together. He was like, yeah. I know you might not like animal cruelty, but I don't give a f I'm gonna yeah. drown these rats. <laughs> and everyone's like, that's our mayor. Yeah, it's a great thing. It's great. No, I mean, that's, that is public, like that's majority public opinion. Like, sure. I actually tried to find polls to find out if there were like New Yorkers who don't want to kill the rats. It's not polled, I have to assume, because like everyone yeah. agree, I don't know. <laughs> Um, but here, we have a tie now. So it's Claire three, uh, Nate, you have three. Rod, I'm, this has been really fun. Um, <laughs> expectations were really high. Um, but I did, I, I got a um, bonus question, just in case. Okay. If you lined up people shoulder to shoulder, how many people could you fit in the borough of Brooklyn? Shoulder, I mean, like, it's, I mean, which direction? <laughs> uh, Wait, like wait, wait, we're filling it up. It's we're, not, it's filling, not like we're filling all of the borough of Brooklyn. This is like a... I mean, so I, I see you've applied to work at Google. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's necessary to point out that I was an English major at this point. <laughs> okay, Nate, you have to go first with this one. Yeah, give me, give me a, like a, a poll to, to navigate around. So there's... What was your college major? Economics. But like, what was your minor? We didn't have minors at, you know. At the University of Chicago, we just were depressed. Minor was, <laughs> no. So I, I mean, who else in here went to the University of Chicago? Because certainly, yeah, great, front row. Minor, <laughs> minor in, a minor in indie rock, Claire. A minor in <laughs> mid-90s indie rock. Uh, I'm going to guess 
Two billion. Two billion? Three billion. Mm-hmm. It's three billion. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. I revise. Eight hundred million. <laughs> wait, wait. Do I get a guess? No, you don't. You're out. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Rod. <laughs> 799 million. It's 1.4 billion. Uh, You're like exactly in the, which is exactly in the middle of the two of you, right? You guess 2 billion, you guess 800 million. So what do we do now? Anyway, you both won. (laughs) (laughs) Round of applause. Um, All right, that's a wrap for today's podcast. Thank you, Nate, Claire, and Rod. And thank you so much to The Bell House for hosting us. A special thanks to Vanessa Diaz and Tony Chow. Round of applause, who took the lead in organizing and recording tonight's live show. And thank you to all of you in the audience. We couldn't have done it without you. Round of applause for yourselves once more. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcast at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. You can also watch this podcast, this live podcast on YouTube. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.